week we are uh, going to pick up where we left off last Sunday. Last Sunday we talked about the, the genealogy of Jesus, but we discovered that the excitement of the genealogy isn't necessarily in the names, it's in the promise that stands behind those names. The promises that were made all the way back, Yahweh giving this particular promise uh, to Adam and Eve just after the fall, sin has entered the picture, and, and Yahweh comes to them and says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The promise that God would make later to Abraham to say, I'm going to make of you a great nation and your, your family, your nation will be blessed to be a blessing to all of the peoples of the world. That promise that Yahweh made to David that we looked at last week, 2 Samuel 7, where he said to him that your kingdom will remain forever, forever. Because through you, David, will come the Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Yahweh is faithful to keep his promises. And that's what we looked at last week in those first several verses of Matthew chapter 1. So, so Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, help us to better understand the human origin of Jesus. Uh, the, the rest of the chapter, 18 through 25, helps us to understand better the divine origin of who Jesus is, and that's what we're going to look at today, and so I'm going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, familiar to many of you. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet he quotes from Isaiah here, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your gracious blessing as we consider these incredible truths that have uh, purposeful impact, that have eternal impact, Lord, on, on us as individuals, on us as a church. And so I pray that you'll help us, Spirit, to understand. You'll help us, Spirit, to apply and, and recognize the, the massive importance of these truths, these names, these promises that are given in Matthew 1. And not only for our own personal benefit, our corporate benefit, but also as we share these truths with the world around us who desperately needs hope, desperately needs peace, desperately needs love and joy. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, in verse 18, Matthew pretty much just gets down to business. He says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And first of all, he introduces us to these figures of Mary and Joseph and their particular situation. They are betrothed. Uh, now, that's not a custom that we have today. Today, if you're going to get married, you typically get engaged first. Uh, that may be like 30-minute engagement or three-year engagement, something depending on how fast you want to move. But you get engaged first, and then you move into marriage and a ceremony. In this day, contractually, they would contract together and be just as married before the ceremony and before the consummation. And that's the state in which Joseph and Mary find themselves. They are considered husband and wife. The ceremony hasn't happened. The consummation hasn't happened. But it's as good as done at this particular juncture in the relationship. And so that's where they find themselves. And it's during this season of betrothal that it is discovered by Joseph and probably by others that Mary is expecting. She's expecting Matthew quickly informs us in, in his context that the child is of the Holy Spirit, but as you can imagine, that would be pretty hard for Joseph and maybe others to understand or swallow in the moment of time. And so he's trying to come to grips with this, and he has some options in front of him. One, he could have her put to death. Uh, that is a possibility. He could have her publicly shamed. But he is what we would call today a pretty good guy. He's a decent fellow. The scripture considers him and calls him righteous. Um, he's not vindictive. He's not angry. He has compassion towards Mary. And so in his mind, he's decided that he will privately deal with this situation. He will privately dissolve their, their marriage and they will move on with their lives. But while he's trying to figure these things out, the angel of the Lord comes to him in appearing in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David. Note that reference. Last week, Joseph, son of David, making the connection for us all the way to David, to that promise that's made to David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is a massively loaded message that's given to Joseph. It's like a pinata that just got busted open and the candy goes flying everywhere. And so we're going to try to gather some of those pieces together and make sense out of what he is saying here, breaking it down. And I want to start with this idea of the Holy Spirit conception and the virgin birth. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew here with this statement is drawing us back into the Old Testament, back to the promises that Yahweh has made to his people, back to Isaiah chapter 7 in verse 22 and 23. He actually quotes from Isaiah 7 and verse 14 that says, Behold, a virgin will conceive, she'll bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. So what's the significance of the virgin birth? Why is that such a big deal to us? And we don't often talk about it outside of the context of Christmas, but during the Christmas season, it's certainly something we sing about, we talk about, but through the history of the church, if you look at any documents or creeds, you look at our own articles of faith and, and uh, doctrinal statement as a church, you're going to see a reference to the virgin birth. Well, why is it so significant? Matthew mentions it because it's just another proof. It's another evidence that this is the Messiah. This is the promised one. He's out to give evidence. But when we go back 
to the origin of this particular prophecy, Isaiah chapter 7. We've got to get the bigger picture here. This is a prophecy that's given uh, in some sense to Ahaz, the king of Israel. Ahaz is the king, not of Israel, of Judah at that time. This is the divided kingdom where you had the southern kingdom that was made up of Judah, basically, and the northern kingdom that made up the other tribes. And so you had this southern kingdom. Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom. He is in the, the royal lineage of David, but he is about as wicked as they come. He brought all sorts of false gods and, and statues and temples and into the city of Jerusalem. He even sacrificed one of his own children. Uh, to the god Molech. Ahaz is as wicked as they come. And, and at this particular season, there are a couple of other rulers that are around him. The king of the Assyrians, Rezin, and, and the king of the northern kingdoms of Israel, uh, Pekah, uh, they are plotting against Ahaz. They're working together to try to remove him from his position. And so Ahaz, instead of going to Yahweh to plead for help and deliverance, he goes to the king of Assyria. Uh, Tigrith Pfizer is his name. Tigrith Pfizer comes in and he ends up basically stealing all of the gold and the precious metals from the temple and exploiting Israel for all they have. But it's during this season that Isaiah, by the word of the Lord, goes to Ahaz and says, hey, Yahweh wants to help. And, and Ahaz dismisses him. I don't want to hear from Yahweh. I didn't ask for a message from Yahweh. You can see his, his almost hatred towards Yahweh. And, and despite that, Isaiah continues to press forward and says, you know what, you may not want a prophecy, but he wants to give a sign. And here's the sign. A virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. That's a prophecy that Ahaz did not want to hear. And many wonder why God has anything to do with Ahaz at this moment. Why would he even give him a particular sign? Well, here's, here's the point. Isaiah is telling the wicked king that no one will destroy the lineage of David. No one will stop the process that has been started of bringing the Messiah into the world. And when the prophet says in this context that the Lord will give you a sign, it's not a singular you, Ahaz, it's a plural you. The Lord will give you, Israel, all of you a sign that he keeps his word, that he's faithful to his promises, telling them that God would not allow Rezin, Pekah, anyone else to destroy them or the line of David. It's a promise that he will continue to come through. And so there's the history of this particular prophecy. But theologically, what do we get from it? Two points I want to make. First is what we call, and I'm going to throw out a theological term here for you, the hypostatic union. I don't mind throwing those words out. Some of you may just say, why are you talking? These are important truths. The hypostatic union is this, that Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. And that he is both of those things at the same time. It's a fancy way of saying that. A couple of years ago, I, I purchased this uh, series of uh, church history lectures. And you, if you're an Amazon Prime person, you can actually go on there, and I believe all of these are free. It, it will take you uh, months and months to get through all of these 30-minute lectures that Ligonier put out, but they are incredible. And I was reminded in that as we were working through the history of the church that one of the first arguments, one of the first debates that the church had 
Even within the first century, after the death of that first generation of Christians, they were asking the question, was Jesus really God? Was he really God? It's why John writes his gospel. Right? John wrote his gospel at the end of the first century, about a generation after most of the other gospel writers, Paul had finished his letters. John writes his gospel, and what's the point of John's gospel? He is God. Over and over, he's making the point, bringing stories to bear to prove the point that he is God. And so once they got that settled in the church, uh, they began to ask the question, was he really man? So if he's really God, could he also be truly a man? In 325, there was a council that came together called the Nicene Council. And they put out a creed called the Nicene Creed. I'm not going to read all of it. It's beautiful. I want to read the beginning. It says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made of man. I believe I put that portion of that in your bulletin so you can see that, you can take that with you. But they hit the nail on the head in the Nicene Creed. Fully God, fully man, God of gods, light of light. This is who he is. And here's the point. Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man. He had to be fully man to be a substitute for you and for me. He had to do what Adam could not do. He comes as the second Adam, and he comes to live the life that Adam couldn't live and that you couldn't live, a life of righteousness and perfection, a life that loved God with all of his heart, soul, and mind. Uh, He had to come as a man so that he could die in man's place as a substitute for man and rise again as the first fruits of our own resurrection. He had to be fully man, but he also had to be fully God to avoid the sin, to avoid giving in and the sin nature that is passed from Adam all the way through the generations to all of us who exist in this room today, to everyone who exists in the world. He had to be both. And the virgin birth is what makes that possible. The Holy Spirit conception is what makes that possible for Jesus to be both God, the Holy Spirit, and man, Mary. Born of the Spirit, born of Mary. And in so doing, he somehow mysteriously bypasses the sin nature that is passed down from generation to generation. Even David wrote, in sin did my mother conceive me. But through the virgin birth, Jesus is able to bypass those things. I want to read to you a quote from one author. He says, obviously, Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit is a great mystery. And even had he wanted to do so, how could God explain to us in terms we could comprehend how such a blending of the divine and human could have been accomplished? 
And he goes on to say, we could no more fathom such a thing than we fathom God creating the universe from nothing. Or or his being one God in three persons. Or his giving an entirely new spiritual nature to those who put their trust in his son. What I want you to see today from Matthew chapter 1, from these particular verses, is the necessity of the virgin birth. I want you to leave with a clear understanding that this is why we sing of the virgin birth. This is why it's in our doctrinal statements. This is why it's something we believe because the gospel is at stake. The truth of the gospel is at stake if we don't truly get this. But let's go back now to the angel's message to Joseph. The second part of the message is more instructive. He says, I want you to name the child Jesus. Well, Jesus was actually a pretty common name during those days. Uh, it comes from the name Joshua or, or Yeshua from the Old Testament. And as you can imagine, uh, Joshua was a pretty popular guy in the history of Israel. And so a lot of people would want to name their kid after Yeshua. It's a pretty cool name to have. Got another guy in the room that would at least agree with me on that one. Uh, So it's a great name. But here the angel qualifies the commonality of the name. He doesn't just say, I want you to call him Jesus. He said, I want you to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, the name Yeshua means this, and we can go back to where we started this year. I love that we can end it, start, put all this together. We started in the book of Joshua. His name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh delivers. And and there's a twist that's given when he says, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Significant prophecy regarding the life and death of Jesus. What was to come for this child that we be born? This Messiah is not coming to conquest the land so that Israel can reclaim the land promised to them. He's not coming to, to run the Romans out of town. He's coming for a much more significant purpose, to save people from their sins. Eternity is at stake. A relationship with the creator is at stake. And we, we should rejoice at this truth. We should rejoice at the name that's given to him because we are the saved. We're the ones who gather together every Sunday. We, we every day relish and reap the grace and mercy that is our salvation because Jesus came, because he died because he rose again. But there's one more name mentioned. Its roots are in Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And I say this every year, and I'll probably continue to say this every year. This is one of my favorite names to consider as we consider Christmas, as we consider Christ in the Advent season. He is Emmanuel. Let that soak in for a moment. God with us. One thing we've noted as we've worked through the Old Testament was the massive importance of the presence of God amongst his people. It was there in the Ark of the Covenant. It was there in a a pillar of fire and in a pillar of cloud. 
It was there as the priests were instituted and they were there representing God, the prophets who would come. Even the kings that were established were meant to be representations of God, this presence amongst his people. And they considered it a complete disaster if Yahweh would have ever abandoned them. If they were ever left alone, and you remember the time when the ark got stolen and how, how discombobulated they were at that point. We've lost God. We've lost Yahweh. He's gone. Ichabod, the glory is departed. Friends, what we celebrate is that Jesus has come. And it's not just this for, for followers of Christ. It's not just that he is, he's with us. He's in us. His spirit is actively at work inside of each and every one of his children. Beautiful, beautiful truth. For many, as has already been mentioned, and I so appreciate the flow of the service today and the way in which that's been directed by the spirit, but Christmas can be a difficult time. For many, it can be a time of loneliness, um, Despair, seasonal depression is a huge issue during this time of year. Uh, sometimes those, those feelings are produced by, by grief, recognizing that somebody's not there, somebody's not at the dinner table. Apple's been killing me with this one particular ad that they're showing during football games, of all things. They've got grown men crying all over the place. But they show the grandpa gets in the car with the daughter and the granddaughters are in the back and they're fighting and so he hands them his iPad and they mess around with it and it progresses and they're there at the house and in time the granddaughters discover some home movies and it's got their grandma in it who's no longer with them. And in the end they, they put this video together and man it is a, it, it's a tearjerker. Grandma's in there and I'm like, I just want to watch football and you're making me cry. <laughs> bawling my eyes out like stop showing this commercial um, it can be a very difficult time um, people oftentimes just feel lost they seem to lose direction and while so many others are celebrating and filled with joy and moving through the motions of the holidays many are left feeling lonely feeling isolated you know I, I thought of that as I talked about these very things at the nursing home this morning any of those people who won't see their families. Uh, they won't get to participate in life as they once did. If that describes you, if it describes somebody you know, and I have no doubt that it describes somebody that each of us knows, that's why this promise is so significant. This name is so significant. God is with us. We're never alone. He's always present with us. Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the one who said, I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm with you to the end of this thing. I saw a, a cartoon this week, and I, I should have get a screen capture. It may have been one of you that shared it on social media, but it showed a picture in the first frame of a lady kneeling in prayer at a bench. And she was just praying a prayer God, are you there? We've all been there. In the second frame, it shows her kneeling on one side of the bench still. On the other side is our Savior, interceding on her behalf. That's a picture of all of us. We are never alone. He's with us to the end.
So how does this story end? Joseph wakes up. Guess what he does? He obeys the command of the Lord. He takes Mary to be his wife. Uh, the child is born. They name him Jesus. That's what happens. So we should respond like Joseph. We should respond in obedience when we hear the message of the Lord, when we recognize who this child is. It should, it should provoke us to believe. It should provoke us to faith in following him, in living for him. And so I encourage you today as you follow the, the story, as you think of the prophecies and the fulfillment of those things, connecting those dots, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture says you will be saved. And if you're struggling to connect those dots, if some of that's still missing for you, please come and see me. Grab somebody else. Have that conversation. Let's talk more so we can help you to see that this, this book isn't just a collection of stories. It's, it's one story, one unified story from start to finish of God's love for you, his grace and mercy in putting a plan into motion that truly culminates in the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of his only begotten son. Respond in belief. We should also respond with rejoicing, recognizing like the angels and the shepherds, salvation has come. Jesus is his name. He has saved me from my sin. I can stand in front of you, though I have sinned mightily this week, but I can stand here forgiven justified because of what Christ has done. With all of our imperfections, we can come together as the body. We can worship. We're welcome to bring our requests before him. We're welcome to fellowship, to share truth with one another because salvation has come in Christ. And then finally, I would encourage you with this one, and you're going to see this theme if you haven't already in the month of December. Share these truths with other people. Share the significance of the name Jesus. Find an opportunity this week for, for somebody who's going through a difficult time and say, hey, have you ever considered what the name Emmanuel means? Have you ever thought about the promise that comes with just that name? God is with us through whatever we venture through. This is a story that Matthew had to tell. He had to write it down. He was... He was uh, compelled to share with other people. And it shouldn't be any different for us. We should be compelled to share the truths of Jesus, the Christmas story with others as well. Next week, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. What was read this morning, what John's section in the Advent reading was about, that the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Invite somebody to come back with you next week to find hope, light, peace, joy will be our focus next week.